Welcome to Exploring the Marketplace show, where we're creating a conversation for what God's doing through Christians in the marketplace. I'm Sean Bowles, and my co-host is Bob Hassan. We interview everyday influencers, business leaders, and entrepreneurs from all areas of industry, exposing you to powerful stories of what God's doing through people just like you. We're also sharing our thoughts about what God's doing in finance, business, entertainment, and politics. Come join the conversation now. Welcome to Exploring the Marketplace today. We're going to be answering a question. How do you recession-proof your career or your business? And also, we're going to be talking to filmmaker and Christian influencer who helps impact culture in the church at large, Phil Cook. I love Phil. He's a PhD co-founder and CEO of the Cook Media Group in Los Angeles. Phil has produced media programming in nearly 70 countries, Bob, 70 countries, and created many of the most influential, inspirational TV programs in history with a client list that includes major nonprofit organizations, and many of the most respected churches and ministries in the world. His latest book is called Ideas on a Deadline, How to Be Creative When the Clock is Ticking. And he's been called one of the most innovative people in the country, which is really cool because you'll see behind him, he has the most trophies of anyone I know. (laughs) I mean, this is from mainstream media, which is so cool. Emmys and all kinds of nominations from all kinds of different things. So it's going to be fun to talk to him. But before we get there, Bob, we're going to be talking about this question. How do we recession-proof our business or career? How do we do it? Well, we're, we're, there's a lot of stuff in the news right now about inflation. Is inflation going to lead to recession? Interest rates are rising. And, you know, as far as a career, we've been reading, Sean, and you and I have been talking about quiet quitters and people that are quiet yeah. quitting. I think the best way to recession-proof uh, your career is not to be a quiet quitter. Is As a matter of fact, to do the opposite to show up on time or early yeah. and, and and get your work done and ask people if they need help getting their work done and be a team player. Because what's going to happen uh, is as, as inflation continues and a, a looming recession continues, uh, people, uh, companies are going to start cutting their workforce. And we've seen it with Google and Facebook now. They're cutting workforce. And w- as that happens, uh, they're going to be looking at people who are producing, and and if and if you have uh, adopted this uh, this this status as a quiet quitter or doing the least amount possible, who do you think is going to go first? Yeah, I was listening to Mike Rowe just today on Fox News. He was talking about how if you don't know Mike Rowe from like the Dirty Job Show back in the day, but now mm-hmm. now he's a Fox News show too about just kind of the state of people who work everyday jobs. And he was talking about like the fact that tradesmen and people who work in, you know, the blue collar laborer and is not going to be in the recession. They're not going to be hurting as much as people who are, you know, in front of a screen all day long who aren't as needed anymore because you can automate a lot of those jobs. So he was, he was appealing to the career person to get some trade skills, which is always Mike Rose thing. That's what he says. On yeah. top of that though, he said a lot of businesses that are meeting actual needs are going to be recession proof. And I thought that was really interesting too, because so many businesses that are fluff or that are just, they're not utility, but they're more of just, you know, creative or it's things that you don't necessarily need and they're luxury. You don't need those anymore in times of recession. You start to cancel Netflix. You start to minimize how many subscription services you have. You stop, you start to not get the extra coffees in the morning and those kinds of things. And although I did hear that coffee isn't going to go away during recession, which is interesting, but you know, I think that's that's good to know. Is like, what can I do if I'm going to be a business owner? Can I add a stream of revenue or a product that is utility? If I'm not in a utility type of product, can I add something alongside of it? And again, this is a time of side hustle. So I get those stream, those multiple income streams. I know for us as a ministry, we have one way as a ministry for people to donate, which is PayPal or Kindful. 
And we were like, why don't we have a member channel on YouTube? Why don't we have a Patreon account? Why don't we have... So even creating with what you do, multiple streams of income is really important mm-hmm. as well. I think some practical advice for entrepreneurs, small businesses, mom and pops, even large businesses are, I can give three practical uh, practical tips to be recession-proof. Number one, um, if you have inventory, make sure that you make put a sale on your inventory and reduce your inventory. Inventory is dollars to your bottom line. Second is accounts receivable. If you're a business that has accounts receivable, shorten the days outstanding of the accounts receivable. Get more aggressive on calling um, the people that owe you money and, and do whatever it takes to collect that money because it's yours for services rendered. And the third thing is looking at your employee base. Uh, if you see uh, headwaters on the horizon, begin to make cuts now and yeah. and look at look at your bottom line and and decide what does your pipeline look like? And do you need all the employees that you have? You, you might say, yes, I do need those employees. But um, And I'll give you a fourth tip. Have conversations with your employee base. Hey, we're entering into inflationary times. Interest rates are rising. There's a looming recession. And, and what we're going to do is tighten the ship. Communicate with your employee base, your, your vendors and your partners about what you're thinking. And, and you'll find that sharing ideas uh, in the space will really help you get a good grasp on on where you're going uh, and and read good articles and to see yeah. you know what what is the, what is the media saying i I read the Wall Street Journal because it tends to be uh, less political left or right leaning and I, I get a lot of good uh, uh, tips that way yeah I think the first thing you were talking about when you were saying don't be a quiet quitter would be the opposite. I think if you're doing a really good job too, if you're a career person, you don't own a business and you're a career person, one of the things that you should consider is asking your company for the rate, an inflation raise. Because if inflation has caused us to go up 10% or whatever, and then we have groceries at 13% inflation, we have gas, I mean, I would just paid 690 for gas at the pump today. It was crazy. So we have all these inflationary rates and it costs companies too much to hire somebody else. So if you know you're doing a good job, you know you're a good employee, it's not wrong to ask your employer and say, hey, the inflation's tough. I need to know if there's any way that you could meet me somewhere to do a pay increase because of what's going on in the world around us. And most likely they're going to say yes. They may not say yes right away, but most likely they're going to consider that into your end of the year increase, uh, cost of living increase, maybe into uh, a bonus that's coming or whatever else. But I just think it doesn't hurt to ask or talk to them if they're not already offering that. Most uh, good employers are trying to offer that ahead of time. They're, they're trying to give you like a 4%, 5% increase ahead of time. But some, because of they, they can't afford not to do it for their employees, but some need their employees to tell them and say, hey, it's hurting right now. So I would also encourage that as well. Yeah, I think uh, annual COLA increases are 2 to 3%, but in, in these times, and I love the way you said it, Sean, talking to your employer and, and just, and being humble and saying, hey, these things are hurting me and it would really help me uh, and uh, f- for a for a larger cola increase, and I, I love the way that you said that because rather than demanding, becoming a partner and saying, "Look, I'm I'm doing the best I can, and this is happening to me. How can how can you help?" I, I think that's beautiful. Well, we have a lot more for you on the show today. Today with Phil Cook, you're going to love his culture commentary on how the church can engage at large. The church can engage culture in a way different way, and also if you're a business owner, if you're somebody who's working 
in any career field where you have management or leadership, you want to use creativity to your advantage. And if you don't use it, you might just get left behind. Phil's going to talk about his own personal story, but also talk about those things up next. Sean Gaby, you're doing a class at the Spiritual Growth Academy here at BowlsMinistries.com. I love this class because it's called Everyday Supernatural Lifestyle. This is really developing leadership to everyday people. Tell us about what you're going to be teaching and imparting. One of the biggest things we're going to be doing is really talking about how to bring the voice of God in our relationship with God out into the marketplace. How do we how do we navigate those waters and see him move, him speak in the environments that we're in in everyday life as leaders? I love that so much because there's not a lot of classes on this. There's not a lot of information on this. There's some stories you can hear, but you're actually teaching it and you've been teaching this for a long time. You do not want to miss this class, especially if you're a career person, you're an influencer, you're a leader. You want this as part of your foundation laying experience. Come join us, BullsMinistries.com today. Well, welcome back, Sean. Here we are with Phil Cook. Phil, how are you today? I'm doing great. I just got back from Korea, so I'm a little discombobulated, but I'm feeling pretty good. I think you're probably getting back from somewhere all the time. We're doing things all the time. I, so I love that. You're a yeah. high functioning person, probably no matter what. <laughs> I, I, I tell people I'm time zone agnostic. I'm on the road all the time. So <laughs> I don't know what time it is. I just function. Uh, since coronavirus, I haven't traveled much. So I, I traveled and I, I got back and I had so much jet lag and I was like, I never had jet lag. What, what is going on with my body? It's so funny when you're not used to it, you know? Well, you know, about six or eight years ago, I had a, a kind of a meltdown. I, I really thought if I have to get on an airplane one more time, I'll kill myself. Yeah. And it was like, God spoke to me very clearly and said, but you have no other skills. This is all you're good at. <laughs> and um, so I embraced it. I joined the airline club. I got some nice luggage because that's where I live. And uh, I've learned that once you embrace something, even if you hate it, if you just change your thinking yeah. and learn to embrace it, it can completely change your perspective. So I've gotten to the place where I just enjoy being on a plane now because it's what I do. And uh, the good thing is I could be stuck in any country in the world and I have a friend I could call. So that's a good thing. But that's life. That's like the, the best first story of the show, because right. there's so many people who don't embrace parts of their destiny. They just get anxiety. Yeah. Disease, especially airport anxiety is a real thing. And so that's such a that's such a great place to start. But take us back in your career because you're one of the most fascinating people I think who lives here in LA, <laughs> and just some of the things you've worked on. You've had such an eclectic background, such an eclectic life, but so powerful. And I, when I first moved here in 2006, I had, I was already a fan of your work. I'd already been in touch with you know I'd read one of your books, yeah, and just thought about you through the years. We've kind of intersected here and there, but yeah. you've been such a voice for a couple of different things. But one of the, my favorite voices you've been is you've helped the church to re-engage culture the right way with the right mindset. And then you've also helped in, in people to think way outside of boxes that they currently have. So those are two of the areas that I've really, there's so many more areas I could talk about because there's a, those are two of the highlight reel. But to, how did you get into this career? How did you get into doing what you're doing? Well, I'm a preacher's kid. I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina. My dad was a pastor my whole life. And um, I uh, grew up mowing the church cemetery and filling thousands of communion glasses and cleaning up by, you know, being the janitor. And uh, so I've seen ministry from behind the scenes my whole my whole career. I remember mowing this church cemetery. It was a hundred year old cemetery when I was a kid. And back then they buried people in wooden boxes. The coffins were boxes and they'd often rot through. And one time I remember going over a, a grave and it just collapsed. Me and the lawnmower fell right into it. And you, you see stuff that you really shouldn't see when you're like 10 years old. And um, my dad panicked and said, you got to fix it. You can't let the family see this. Fill it up, fill it up. 
So I'm 10 years old. So I filled it up with broken lawn chairs and concrete blocks and old pieces of wood and bags of garbage oh and put a little layer of dirt over the top. And I was really excited. I thought I did a good job until I realized when the rapture happens, those people are never getting out of there. <laughs> so, um, uh, I, I, the, the interesting thing was during that time, it was, this was in the 60s, pastors would do some crazy things, you know, they, they, they meant well, they were well-intentioned, but they did really stupid things to try to encourage people to come to church. I have one yeah. pastor in our community, you know, said if he'd get so many, you, you know, young people to come to church, he'd shave his head. Another guy sat on a pole for like, a, a, you know, two weeks trying to encourage people to come and they would do all these stunts and people would come up to me in, at school and say, Phil, why is pastor so-and-so such a bonehead? Why is he doing these dumb things? And, and I learned early on as a kid that the way the world perceives us is very, very different than the way we think wow. we're being perceived out there. And so, it, you know, when I was in high school, I got a group of friends. We started making movies. My dad had a little Super 8 movie camera, three little three-minute reels, had no idea that this is something we do for a living. But uh, we made space movies and army movies wow. and mafia movies. And I, it's funny, I took them to college. I went a thousand miles away to college, took my little films with me thinking, you know, maybe there'll be guys out there that want to make some films. Never thought I, again, I would ever do this for a living. And the first day I was in college, I was unpacking my suitcase, a couple films rolled out, a guy across the hall said, hey, I'm taking a film class. I can show you how to edit those things. I didn't even know you could cut film at the time. And um, we went down that night, we're working on my movie professor's there working on a project and late in the night as he's leaving, he walks over, introduces himself and said, you know, I've been watching your little movie out of the corner of my eye and I've got kids that have been taking classes for two, three years that still don't do this well. Would you mind if I showed your film in my class tomorrow? Wow. And I said, well, sure. If I can sit on the back row and I didn't even know what I was going to major in at the time. And, um, next day I came in, sat on the back row. They showed my little movie. Trust me, it was nothing to scream about, but, uh, after they showed it, the class discussed it. And this idea, this revelation, this moment hit me, probably the most crystal clear moment of revelation I've ever had in my life. It hit me that if I can do something with a camera that makes people talk like this, this is what I'm supposed to do with my life. Wow. And um, I literally changed my major that day, became a film student, and I've never, never looked back. Wow, that's so incredible. You know, well, one, of the things, one of the things that you said really early in the open is that you embraced this thing that you didn't like. And I, I, I love talking to people and asking them, like, do you like 75% of your job? Because if you like 75% of your job, you've got a great job. Yeah. And, and what I'm hearing now from you is this thing that you were so interested in became a passion and then you built it into a career that doesn't happen for too many people. Speak to us and to the, our audience about that. Well, the irony of all this is that I'm not even remotely doing today what I thought I would be doing by now. You know, my, my dream was I went ahead and majored in film and television in college. My dream was to come to Hollywood and be a film director. And so when I graduated in the 70s, I immediately came to L.A., and in those days, the unions had a lock on everything. There was no independent production like there is now. And um, if you weren't in the union, there was no way you could get in the business and you had to have a relative in the union. And I struggled for about six or eight months. I, I worked on a num number of forgettable little, little projects. And finally, I realized I'm getting married. I got to have a regular job. So I went back to the Midwest. And at the time I was living in, in, in Oklahoma and I was working at the largest, I got a job working at the largest media ministry in the country. 
And I really started focusing more on, you know, how do we help the church engage media? This It's the language of the culture, even back then. Yeah. And um, so it's not what I thought. I mean, and I stayed there about, I don't know, 10, 12 years. And mm-hmm. oddly enough, I got fired from my job. So my whole career has been a story of hitting walls. I mean, right. I, wow. you know, I came to L.A. It was a union town. I couldn't get in. Went back to the Midwest, got a job, was doing great got fired. It wasn't because I was screwing up. It was because the next generation of leadership at the ministry really didn't agree with me on a lot of stuff. Was, they didn't think I was very funny and original and creative. <laughs> so um, they they fired me. But looking back again, it was the best thing that ever happened. I think it was God that fired me. You know, I'm the king of rationalization. I had, <laughs> you know, our kids were in a good school. I had a good job. We went to a good church. I thought, well, I know God, I feel like you've called me to Hollywood, but you know, we're doing great here. Maybe I could commute. Maybe I could work it out. So I think ultimately it was God that stepped in and fired me because it was the best (laughs) thing that ever happened. We came to LA, we launched Cook Media Group, our company, and we've been working very, very steadily ever since. Wow. What are some of the biggest kind of uh, roadblocks you hit when you you launched Cook Media as far as the church's perception? Because you guys have been some of the ones who shaped, I think, Christian culture to understand how to partner to mainstream film and television, not just the faith-based world, but also how do we engage culture, period. So what are some of those roadblocks? Because you guys have been in it when everybody thought that, you know, Hollywood was satanic. We've come a long way from that. (laughs) You guys, you've had a lot of battles you fought. What are some of the harder battles or what are some some of the things you're proud of that has happened in Christianity at large because of even being able to participate? Well, we've done some things over the years that were really remarkable. And I think even even the stories, I think the, the most successful projects we've ever done were projects that were we had an enormous amount of pushback. I mean, we, we're client-driven. So a lot of major ministries over the years, big churches, organizations have hired us to help them use the media more effectively. So we've done TV specials for everybody from Billy Graham to, you know, all kind of organizations. The Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. today is a big client of ours. We've done things. We helped really bring the video world into the Salvation Army in a big, big way. We've worked with churches like Prestonwood in Dallas with with Pastor Jack Graham over the years. But some of the most interesting things were ministries that didn't really like my idea. And um, Mm -hmm. I had one particularly large ministry, I won't mention it, but they asked us to do a a, a global primetime television special. And we started, and they came to me and said, look, we want you to actually go out of the box, create something original that somebody who'd never watched one of our programs would, would watch. And so we took them at their word. We opened the show with a guy committing suicide in his car. We we really took it. It was like MTV meets this ministry. It was really, really weird. And um, they hated it. They hated it twice. They sent guys out to yell at us in the editing room. And when we finally finished the one-hour special, we had to get it signed off by the number two guy at the ministry. And he looked at it and said, you know what? This is not what this ministry is about. As long as I'm alive, this will never air. And this was back in the days of VHS tape. And, you know, we used this, we would make screeners on the VHS. And, and I'm told one of his guys told me he left it sitting on his coffee table. His wife came in that night and watched it. And she said, honey, I don't know what this is, but people should see this. And they went ahead, relented and and broadcast the program. And uh, someone on the inside of the ministry and the LA times confirmed it actually that it generated a million calls for salvation. 
globally, oh a million calls for salvation. It's the most successful program they have ever done in their history, and they've never called me back. So um, it's <laughs> it's just interesting that very many times, if you really feel like God's called you to do something, you've got to go, you got to step forward. Uh, you're going to get pushed back. You're going to get criticism. But um, if you really believe in, you know, what you've, you're, you know, the stakes are high. If you really believe in what you're called to do, you, you have to push forward. Wow. I think as an entrepreneur, going outside of the box is really a scary thing to do. But even being an entrepreneur is outside of the box. If it was easy, everyone yeah. would do it. And, and so, so here you are in, with your Cook Media Group. Somebody asked you to go outside of the box and you do. Did that temper what you did next? I mean, the next time somebody said, hey, we have this idea, did it temper your ideas? Or did you just continue to say, look, this is what I think God's called us to do. And this is where we're going. It depends on how much money we have in the bank. Um, you know, yeah. you know, so we, we always have that dialogue. We have that conversation. Okay, do I play it safe and, you know, win the client's trust? Or do we do what really feel like that, you know, this could transform this ministry? Yeah. And uh, we usually err on the side of, you know, taking the chance of getting fired and trying something really, really different. Now it's, it's interesting. It's every ministry is different. Every church is different. Every business is different. I mean, we've done, we've produced Super Bowl commercials. We've done plenty of secular things. And so, you know, the church is not that different from a, a secular business in, in that way. Um, but it, it's, it's just very, very interesting. I think if there's a reason we've stayed relevant is the word uh, for so long it's because I am constantly working to stay on the cutting edge of what ha what is happening in the culture and the media world out there. You know, mm -hmm. I, on my desk, I have a little bronze plaque from a quote from Michelangelo that at the peak of his powers, he said, I'm still learning. Yeah. And I'm thinking if Michelangelo could have that attitude, I yeah. need to have that attitude. And so I'm constantly going to conferences. I'm constantly studying, writing. I want to see what people are doing out there, what's not, what's working, what's not working. That's really, I think, the key to staying relevant. I, I can name you a hundred people that do what I do that are now selling real estate that are, yeah. that, you know, have fallen away over the years because they didn't stay relevant. And I think that's the most, if I would encourage anybody, it's please do that. 10, ten years, you know, a couple of times in my career, I've looked at my work and I realized, you know, this is kind of dated and I'm not staying up as much as I should. And so wow. I've, I've surrounded myself with younger people, right. different voices. I've, I've rethought what we've done, thrown everything out the window and started over. I think that really matters. I think that also is probably one of the challenges of a lot of people because they don't like to adapt or use their adaptive energy or oh, change too much. True. And so I think like the fact that you've modeled that, I think has really impacted a lot of people because especially out here in LA, I think there's so many ministries that are still 10 years ago and but yeah. they're trying to be relevant today. And I love that you guys have always been trying to reform and then also challenge others. Like you, you're a natural challenger. You're naturally put ideas out there. If someone reads one of your books, they're going to feel like pressed to challenge, but you're, you're such a fun person that it's not like out of a wrong place or arrogance or intensity. Mm -hmm. It's out of like, Hey, let's go here. Let's keep going. Talk yeah. about your family a little bit. Cause it's a little bit change in direction of the interview, but you brought your family to Hollywood and you guys have, I mean, there's, you have kind of a family story in this. Talk about how this impacted your family to go after this calling. Yeah. My, you know, it's funny. My wife has been, my wife, Kathleen has been used to um, the unexpected since we first met. It's funny. I met her in college. Uh, we sat next to each other at a Vesper service. This would have been the, the, you know, the, the mid seventies, uh, late seventies. And, um, she, she, this, this woman was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. She wore a 
pink patent leather. I mean, she had a pink corduroy pantsuit on, white <laughs> patent leather platform shoes. I thought she was the hottest thing on two wheels. <laughs> and um, it took me three months to get up the courage to ask her out. Wow. And I, when I called her, the only reason she said yes was because she thought I was somebody else. <laughs> and um, I'm not kidding you. And it's not, and you, talk, you talk about, you talk about killing your confidence when you go pick up a girl at the dormitory and you, you, she has this expression of, Oh no, it's that Phil. And um, so we didn't start out well. And um, so she's, but, but I won her over and uh, managed to win her over. And uh, we've been on this journey ever since. So she's been super faithful to stay alongside during very, very difficult, challenging times. When I got fired, she was there, you know, she, we packed up, moved to LA, restarted in 1991 here in Los Angeles. And um, she's been with me the whole way. So it's been really a very interesting ride. Now she has her own ministry to women in Hollywood called influence women. That's been doing amazing. Yeah. And so um, it's, it's been an interesting, and, and I'll say this, um, that when I see people that come to Hollywood and end up failing and, and go back to Kansas or Iowa or wherever they came from. In most cases, it's because the spouses, the husband and wife were not on the same page. And I really encourage people when you launch a company, when you're, if you're an entrepreneur and you're launching a company or you're coming to Hollywood or you're doing something bold and brave, because if you're not, that will cause stress, that will cause problems. And I just have to say that probably the greatest number of failures here in Hollywood that I've seen have happened because the husband and wife were not on the same, they were not on the same page with the vision and it, it ultimately fell apart. You, you know, Phil, uh, in our business, I've been married to Lauren for a long time. And, um, and we, we have this rule that any major decisions we don't make until the other one has peace about it or has agreed. And about 15 years ago, our company got sued by the union. Uh, and, and uh, you know, our attorney said it's going to cost $2 million to defend this and you're going to lose. And so I, I had capitulated and I was ready, I was ready to sign, but she wasn't. And I had to wait eight months until she finally heard the Lord and said, okay, you can sign. And in the meantime, we were picketed with pigs and rats and, you know, all this different stuff. And it was, it was one of the hardest times in our marriage for me to wait for her to say, okay, I, I see and and I think what you just said is so uh, is so important for for entrepreneurs for anybody like you just said to to make sure you're on the same page with your spouse. That's yeah. good. That's really good. That's really good. Uh, yeah, it's been it's really been critical for me, and um, it's made a big difference. Well, I know she's just such an inspiration though too, and I think the fact that she um, has, shares the same values as you and actually wants to go after Hollywood with you. Yeah. As opposed yeah. to you just doing your career and your ministry and then her just doing whatever else she's doing in another genre. I love that you guys have been a partner, like a dynamic duo in that sense. It's it's really been yeah. a model, role model to a lot of people. I know it's beautiful. Well, tell us about this. What are you working on now? What are you passionate about in this season of film, television, what's going on in the entertainment industry? Well we're always, we've always got four or five projects going. We're working on a documentary right now for the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Okay. on uh, that we filmed in Malta. We, we just, we, we wow. filmed in Malta a few months ago and we're editing right now, but, and, and I'm always got a new book in the, you know, in, in the hopper. Um, one of the things that I'm really focused a lot on is writing and teaching about leading creative people. 
You know, it's yeah. interesting. There's a lot of leadership stuff out there. My friend, John Maxwell, there's some great guys, you know, Rob Hoskins. There's some great guys that are doing some remarkable teaching and, and, and mm-hmm. writing books on leadership. Not many people are focusing on how to lead creative people. And the truth is, I don't care if you're a CEO. I don't care if you're a pastor. I don't care what you do. You're going to deal with designers. You're going to deal with a video person. You're going to deal with a website. You're going to deal with the creative stuff. And so um, I, I've spent my whole life leading creative people and um, film teams and video crews and things like that. And so I, I've spent a lot of time, I was just at a marketplace ministry conference in, in Korea, and I was teaching on that very thing. And I just think it's so critical wow. that we learn how to inspire and motivate creative people, because if we're going to gauge the culture well, we have to get the creative people on our team motivated and inspired to, to make that happen. So that's a big focus of where I'm at. I, right know, I, I talk about like with creative people, you're some people will say you're hurting, you know, cats. I'm like, no, it's more like hurting lions. Like you're, yeah. these people are like, they're amazing, but most creative people have a lamb side and a lion side. And most of the time when you're hurting them, it's more like the lions, you know? So it's just, I love that yeah. you're writing this because I think that it's exactly what's coming next is the creative artisans and the creative people are getting more empowered than ever, mm-hmm. especially in Christianity. And so to be able to have that language, because there is a difference than your normal nine to fivers or your normal management styles, they don't always work the same way. So I, I, I can't wait. I will be a student of yeah. what you're teaching. This is really good. <laughs> Well, you know, it's no coincidence that when it comes to secular business, when it comes to effective churches or nonprofit organizations, the ones that get on the radar, the ones that get noticed, the ones that are making a huge impact, it's not a surprise that they also happen to be telling their story really well. And their graphic design is amazing. Their videos are amazing. Their TV commercials that they're a company are amazing. And so being able, you know, the bottom line is media is the language of the culture. And until we learn to speak that language, we're never going to engage the culture well. And so if I had a message to church leaders, it's really focused on that. You know, uh, creativity, media, it's the currency of this culture. And we need to learn to speak that language if we're going to make an impact. Well, I think it's true for everybody who's listening to all the marketplace leaders. If you're a doctor, it's true. If you're a farmer, it's true right now. Every single person has to do what you're saying. It's really, really true. So true. Um, yeah. So you've written, it looks like you've written seven books and I think maximize would have been the book talking to creatives, right? Yes. Uh, actually I wrote maximize your influence to, to pastors, leaders, business leaders who really don't get this whole web, social media, book Mm -hmm. publishing video thing, because I really, I wrote it during the pandemic because I really, I saw during the pandemic and the lockdowns just how far behind we were in helping Mm -hmm. leaders understand how to use this media stuff. So it's not a technical, it's not a technical book. It's not a how-to book. It's more of a why we need to do this and what you need to know to do it effectively and how to work with your team effectively. Um, My most recent book, Ideas on a Deadline, How to Be Creative When the Clock is Ticking, I wrote really for the creative community because, as I said, I've spent my whole career under deadlines with broad, you know, I learned early on that they're not going to move the Super Bowl date because I can't come up with a good idea for a commercial. So (laughs) I have to deliver. And uh, just like with leadership, I discovered there's a ton of books on creativity out there, but nothing on how to be creative, you know, when, when the pressure's on and when you have to deliver. And I've just discovered that it's funny, writing the book, I interviewed really high level creative people in Hollywood and Madison Avenue, all kinds of places and discovered they just embrace deadlines. They love deadlines. And yeah. in my case, I don't even start a project till I see the 
yeah. deadline looming right. in the distance. So I think if you can learn to master deadlines and be comfortable with them, you can be amazing. And so that's the book that I think is inspiring a whole generation of create, creative people out there to not only embrace deadlines, but de- deliver better ideas uh, when you're under a lot of pressure. So but I would say if you could manage your creativity as some of the creative people I've met, you could become a millionaire easily because these guys, a lot of it's just an administration issue. The talents yeah. there, the creativity is on this generation, but mm-hmm. a lot of people don't know how to manage their own time. So I love that you have a book about this. How do people get your materials, Phil, besides, of course, well, you know, my, the hub of everything I do is at my blog at philcook.com. I'm cook with an E, P-H-I-L-C-O-O-K-E. Um, philcook.com is where everything is. You can see my books there. It's my blog. Um, you can find information about our company, Cook Media Group. And um, I just encourage people to go there. My podcast link to there. I'm doing regular podcasting. And and so all those kind of things are at my hub there at philcook.com. And I'd encourage people to check it out. I mean, I'm writing, I'm writing for people, uh, both secular, Christian, whatever. I'm, I'm trying to help people engage culture more effectively through media. And that's a good spot. Well, Phil, thank you so much for being with us. It's such an honor to have you and see all your trophies behind you and all your accomplishments and hear a little (laughs) bit about your origin story. Thanks again for being with us. Well, it's been fantastic. Thank you, guys. Thanks for exploring what God is doing in the marketplace with us. We have amazing resources for you on our website with free videos, take an online class with us at our online school, Spiritual Growth Academy, or get one of our books, including the one Bob and I authored together, Wired to Hear. We have lots of ways to connect with you. Come visit us on social media. Just look for at Sean Bowles or at Bob Hassan or visit BowlesMinistries.com. This show is made possible by listeners just like you. Become a partner or donate now to become part of our team. If you enjoyed today's episode, share it on your socials or help us review it on the podcast server you found us on. See you next time.